Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. I believe we're at like 25. That's how you know we're moving up. And before we get going with this week's episode, I want to paint a picture for everybody. It's great that so many people are getting into gardening and plants and by some kind of close proximity of that horticulture. But what I am seeing are a lot of Instagram accounts that are popular for like pictures of flowers and that's awesome and that's magical, but they're also sort of putting out this other content about things that are more science and fact-based, not opinion. And the primary thing I've seen people talk about, both on a podcast that's actually nationwide, which is sort of scary, and a lot on Instagram in the last 10 days or so, has been rose rosette disease, which for some reason seems like it's got an extra amount of folklore attached to it. So I wanted to get on the podcast. Dr. Mark Windham from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville is one of the lead researchers on this. All right, Dr. Windham, right at the beginning here, give us the where did this rose rosette disease come from? Like, what's the earliest account we have about it? How long have we at least been aware of it? And where did it start? Sure. Rose rose. The first report of rose rosette disease was in 1941. It involved uh, some wild roses, uh, Rosa woodsii, and uh, Manitoba, Canada. Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah and California. And that is the first report. Actually, the paper in 1941 was describing observations that had been taken in the mid-1930s. But there was something called a depression going on. And so things just got slowed down a little bit. So so right off the bat, you almost... And just giving us that basic history, we know that this was a problem. Do you think this existed in nature before then, and maybe we just hadn't observed it? Well, uh, what was what was described from those observations in the 1930s were mature rose bushes that were dying from the disease. So obviously, they had had it for a while. Uh, it's not uncommon for uh, diseases to go along for a long time if they're not in an area where pe- there's a lot of people or it's not an economic problem. Uh, this kind of thing can happen all the time. Uh, we had obviously had black walnuts kill, bit dying in uh, East Tennessee for perhaps a decade before a thousand canker disease was found. Uh, when we found dogwood and fracnose in East Tennessee, uh, there obviously were thousands of dogwoods, but it already died from it. So this type of thing is, it, it, unfortunately, it's not unusual. One of, and I'm going to encourage you, go as hardcore as you want with everything that's botanically science-based for us throughout this entire conversation. I encourage this because we need to get as much factual information out there as we can. One of the things that I I think we need to maybe emphasize here is sometimes there's this thought that nature is this very kumbaya world where nothing negative comes out of it at all. And what we're already seeing here is this was a virus that had, had been out there. This wasn't like a, a man-made thing. This didn't come out of a nursery in California. This wasn't uh, something that really human interaction caused. Is that safe to say, doctor? It is safe to say. You know, I tell my students here at UT that when it comes to dealing with plant diseases, when we get down to their level, the interactions that they have with plants, the pathogens have with plants, it is a match to the death uh, both sides use everything in their arsenals to try to get the upper hand. The plant defending itself, the pathogen trying to attack the plant. And so th- this isn't uncommon. I think there are several reasons why this thing seemed to explode. It wasn't until 2011 
but this virus was actually identified. Uh, Rose Rosette virus is a, a member of the Merivirus group, which is a group of viruses that was not known to exist 20 years ago. Can you pause there? Can you pause there for a second? Because I know there was a moment here, and I'm going to go real hardcore plant geek here. Sure. There were there were phytoplasms that we knew yep. existed, and for those of you that don't know, like here's a quick little moment for conifers in particular. This is a real true category. That there would be these weird mutations of short, stubby growth on a mature, sometimes conifer. And the or other plants and these things we refer to as witches brooms, mm-hmm. and in the in the plant propagator world, that was seen as a good thing. Sometimes, like you were discovering something, and people would propagate that wood and turn it into a new variety. And there was a there was a minute with roses where where that sort of happened they, too, right? They, they they didn't know what it was. It was very difficult to get a hand on because it's a negative strain RNA virus, which is a very hard group of viruses to work with. And so it had some characteristic of some viruses. There was a paper published in the 60s where they had found virus-like particles uh, in some diseased roses uh, with transmission EM. But then in the 70s, phytoplasmas were real hot. It does, with the witch's broom, have characteristics of phytoplasma. So there were some papers published that this might be a phytoplasma disease. And then... Uh, no, then the thinking came back more around that, no, it's not a phyloplasm because it's not vectored by anything that's known to vector or transmit a phyloplasm. Uh, none of those things were associated with roses, so they started looking at viruses again. And it wasn't until the uh, uh, Anatonis Xenotakis lab at the University of Arkansas in 2011 put to bed that this thing was actually a virus and they named the virus rose rosette virus which is amazing and i think you just also hit on something else i was talking about this this morning on an instagram story this is a pretty high level category of problem right with the with the rna and the genetics involved in this this isn't like a simple diagnosis in general is it well uh no, and it's not for several reasons. The, the first reason is that the, uh, the symptoms for this disease can be very varied. Uh, even two plants of the same cultivar, they may have been grown in two locations. One could be, they could be in the same bed. One could be sitting on a rock, the other one in real good soil. And if they both become infected, their symptoms may be slightly different. On different roses, they can be very, very different symptoms. So that makes it hard to identify. The second thing is that um, we don't have an easy test to confirm that it is a virus. We have to use a quantitative nested PCR test, and it requires very, very expensive equipment. We have it here at UT. And we do test for the virus, but it costs my lab, and we are as frugal as we can possibly be, about $47 a sample. So it's it's a very detailed test. It involves expensive reagents. There's probably only eight labs in the United States that actually can test for the virus. The rest of the people send their other labs in other states, send their stuff to one of the eight. So it's... Uh, and five years ago, that test did not exist. Wow. So it's um, it's very tedious. We're working towards much easier diagnostics, but right now they don't exist. How do you either know or theorize that we go from this period, like in the, at least by human observation, we have this period in the 30s and 40s, and now it feels like in the last 15 or 20 years, it has become across the nation at least, more widespread. How, how do you think the actual transmission went from sort of maybe wasn't observed that much to as widespread as it is today? Oh, gosh, that, that, is, a, that is a very important question. Um, back in the late 1970s and 1980s, they didn't know what 
the thing was, but they knew that it could be transmitted by an aerified mite, which is a microscopic mite. And they were trying to use it as a biological control, a multiflora rose in pastures in Iowa. And they made the conclusion that this will never be a threat to domesticated roses. And and I've had a lot of people question that and and um, talk about how short-sighted they were. They were not short-sighted. They were dealing with a very different rose world. Uh, back then, uh, domesticated roses, somebody might have them in their yard. There might not There might not be any roses for several miles down the street or a road or another neighborhood or the other side of town. Roses were not that common. Uh, In the late 1990s, early 2000s, we started seeing resistance being released in uh, in some roses to, to a disease called black spot. And now people could grow roses without having to spray them every week. And when that happened, roses in commercial and private landscapes just exploded. When I started working, when I, well, when I moved to Knoxville in 1985, roses were very, very uncommon in commercial landscapes. When I started working with Rose Rosette 12 years ago, I drove seven miles down Kingston Pike slash Highway 70 and was never out of sight of a rose bush. Mm. So the rose world changed, and the population of roses exploded, and with this came uh, much more ease in transmission, which if you understand how the mite that transmits this thing moves around, it's only logical that that would happen when the world changed. Now let's, let's key on this subject. Rosa multiflora is something that I have seen people quickly, I actually saw this just this morning, where people were like, okay, Rosa multiflora is the problem. Rosa multiflora is a carrier for Rose Rosette disease. So this person was like, well, whenever you see that, we should get rid of Rosa multiflora. Can you clarify? Can you clarify two things for us? Number one, what? explain how it's actually being carried, the virus. And also, it's not just Rosa multiflora that's the problem now, is it? Well, you see, first of all, what you have to understand is Rosa multiflora is is widespread along roadsides and and in wooded areas and um the seeds are very very tiny one multiple or a rose bush can produce uh approximately two hundred and fifty thousand seed a year. The seed can survive for more than twenty years on the ground, so if that bush dies, some sunlight hits the ground, some of them will start to grow but the key is. A virus in a rose, whether it's in my yard or a multiflora rose bush in someone's wooded field, uh, it can't get up and walk around. So what happens is this virus is spread by a microscopic mite uh, that has no eyes, no ears, no nose, no wings. It has four little stubby legs up by the top of its head. And... Uh, it will feed on a rose. It takes approximately, we think, about five days before it picks the virus up. But then it can transmit it maybe in as short a period as five minutes after it gets it, uh, after it gets inside the, the mite's body. And this mite floats in the air like dust. And so when it lands, if it doesn't land on another rose bush, it can't feed. It doesn't matter what the bush is. It only it can only feed on roses. So uh, the odds of them landing on one a long time ago when we didn't have all these roses everywhere, and I'm not saying, I mean, that's just the way the world has changed. Yeah. Uh, the odds were not in the mite's favor of transmitting this virus anywhere. But now what we have is we have so many roses and a lot of these commercial roses, well, they visit them in late winter, and they cut them back with power pruners. Then they show up one more time, and they throw mulch on them. And that's usually it for the year. 
Uh, they may come back one more time and yank some weeds out, but they're not watching the bushes on a weekly basis or a daily basis like somebody would in their yard. And so what happens is the virus gets transmitted into a plant in one of those beds. The mite populations will explode on an infected rose. An infected rose branch, but symptomatic for the virus, will have 43 times more mites than a branch on the same bush, but it's not showing symptoms. Why is that? Why, why is that? Why does that population explode? We are trying explode? to find that out right now. There mm -hmm. are several different hypotheses about that. One is this mite is a niche mite. It hides under things. So, and the type of niches that it hides under, like scales from butt scars and things like that, in these witches' brooms, it's just more of them. So there's more potential houses. Another possibility is, which is being looked at, is that the nutrition changes. You see, when you look at any kind of animal, whether it's a buffalo or a microscopic mite, what you look for uh, as far as populations when they're growing is habitat, a place for them to live, and a food supply. And so that is what we think is. But we're, we're trying to determine just what those factors are and how they, and there may be more than one factor. In other words, nitrogen may go up. Uh, different sugars may be accumulating. We have a lot to look at mm. uh, on that, and we're doing it now. But do I have an answer for you? No. But we know that it happens, and we just learned that in the last 18 months. Which is and, incredible, uh, too, right? Like, like, And for someone like yourself who's been doing this a minute, like there was a technology gap. Would you say that's true, that almost the technology of the last 20 years or so has given us more ability to narrow down some of these things? That's possible, especially. But what you have to understand is, of all the organisms that transmit plant diseases, Probably the one that has been studied the least, and we know the least about, are aerified mites. Mm. There is very little, there is very, very little in the literature on these things. And, and, and that's probably because it's so dang tiny that the animal people, the entomologists, uh, the arachnophologists, those are the people who study mites, they wanted, it's easier to study the bigger ones. Nobody wanted to study these little bitty things. Um, and, of course, for a long time, we didn't even know that they transmitted viruses. Mm. So the pathologist wasn't interested in them. And so they just sort of sat there unnoticed, but they're not unnoticed now. Mm. And you have the other thing, and that is that we have limited resources. And so, you know, in, in my lab, for instance, uh, I worked a, a, a long time with dogwoods and hydrangeas and switchgrass and other things, you sort of have to follow the grant money. And until rose, until this thing started to really hit the rose industry, you couldn't really justify working on it. Uh, there was no money in it, and you couldn't justify it. And, you know, if you say, well, you know, I can see the dean now sitting there saying, well, Mark, tell me why you're working on this. Well, it's an obscure plant. It has uh, no monetary value. It doesn't seem, Tennesseans don't seem to care about it very much. And we're not really sure how much damage the stupid little bug does to, the, to this obscure plant anyway. Great, Mark. This is just what you should be working on. No dean has ever said that. And so uh, it became a perfect storm when this thing hit the rose industry about 12 to 14 years ago. And all of a sudden, there were a lot of people asking for help. And there wasn't very many people to give them help uh, that people started paying attention. Hmm. So let's go back to Montana, right? Let's go back there. Yeah. Pretty do, state. Do we exactly, right? Besides beautiful parts of the country out there, but nobody lives there. So I'm always, so when we have a subject like this, you know, though in, in Manitoba, in Winnipeg, outside of Winnipeg, somewhere in that region, it's first identified. Do we believe 
that Rose Rosette disease, the virus, was in all species of roses? Have we narrowed that down? Do we know what original species carried it, at least? We know it was found in Rosa Woodsii first, okay? And for a long time, that was the only thing it was known to be found in. Then other, it started to get reports in other, other, um, in other ro- types of Rosa species. I have done extensive tests for both mite resistance and virus resistance in 22 species of Rosa. And I have found a few species of mites, I mean of roses, that the mites have a very difficult time reproducing on. But unfortunately, with the virus, we're not quite, we're not that lucky. In fact, in a multi-year study that we're just concluding between here at Tennessee, Texas A&M, University of Delaware, and Oklahoma State, We've looked at over 1,200 rose cultivars, rose uh, species, different accessions of different species, rose germplasm. In other words, every rose we could get our hands on. And out of those, we have 18 that we think has usable resistance. But unfortunately, none of those are roses that people really want to grow in their garden. Oh, so let's let's pick on one that's, you know, through our part of the neck of the woods, doctor. Rosa Virginiana. Like and I think this is another thing. If you're just a gardener, you're on the you're on the fringe of gardening, like you're not this knee deep in the game. I don't know if people are aware of first off, how many rose just species there are across the world, number one. And then number two and this is going to be a follow-up question for you, how many of the cultivated roses we have that have a pretty complicated parentage, meaning that their genetic origin is sometimes almost impossible to know what it is, and then even if we know the what crosses were made, we don't really know what that does sometimes to these genetics. So like a plant like Rosa virginiana, is that a plant that is showing some kind of... um, Resistance will be the word that we'll use. No, Rosa, unfortunately, Rose, Rosa Virginiana is not. Hmm. Uh, but, I, but, but you hit on something really important. You know, sometimes we don't understand the genetics. You look at miniature roses. There's all types of old stories out how miniature roses came into existence. They probably come from several different sources, but we really and truly don't know how. That's a black box exactly how they magically appeared. We know approximately when they did, but we don't know the genetics behind it. Now, on a, uh, another point is many of the roses that people buy today are polyploids. They don't, they're not diploids with two sets of chromosomes like us or most plants out there. They'll have four sets, six sets, maybe even eight sets of chromosomes which makes the genetics. <laughs> really glad I'm not a plant geneticist working with roses. Now, I partner with several, and thankfully, they are much smarter people than me. <laughs> well, how, and that's, and so here we have an example, and I'm, I'm not going to name it by name, but I will say this. We have a very, 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 very popular landscape rose that more than likely had a parentage of a rose that clearly is susceptible to rose rosette disease. Well, you could say that about any rose just on the market today. Yeah. It's not just any one. Now, the one you're probably thinking about is extremely susceptible to rose rosette, but it's no more susceptible susceptible than a thousand others. Now, now I want hammer that point home for us because this is something that I think, uh, uh, and you know, we could say the same thing with black spot, right, doctor? That we get this word resistance out there as a marketing sales term on plants. And people are like, oh, this one doesn't get it. And that's not what we're talking about. Like, no, it's, unfortunately, it's not. But, but, but here's the key. If you were to go in Tennessee to any high school, 
And if you did a sample of 500 students in that high school and you looked at hair color, the probably somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of the students in that school are going to have brown or black hair. And so we could say then that 80% of the students are brunettes, using that old term. And so a new disease goes through the school that's not been seen before. You could hear it now. Well, it appears to be connected to having brown and black hair because over 80% of the students that have this disease are brunettes. Now, that is because of the commonality of brunettes. It has nothing to do with a relationship. So what we have seen is, is a handful of roses that are very, very popular, that are planted in many, many places, that have, that unfortunately are susceptible to the disease, like practically every other rose on the market. But those are the ones people see because those are the most common ones. And so people go, aha, it's associated with them. That's only because of their commonality. It has nothing to do with genetics. And this is such a key point, folks, to, to listen here to this, that the science behind this is just so important to understand that this is not, I, I want you, we're going to really, we're going to take a, just a quick diversion here from Rose Rosette talk because our brains might melt. My, yours won't because you, you clearly have been inoculated. You talk about this all the time, but black spot yeah. and the are you concerned when you see commercial retail rose nurseries put out literature that is like disease resistant pest resistant no. that we're we're almost creating a um a set of expectations for a customer I'll, I'll, I'll explain why for three reasons okay. i'll try to be as brief as i can number one um you turn on the television set tonight, and the odds are you're going to see a, a, a commercial for for a car dealership. The car dealership is going to say they will give you the very best price in town, and nobody can beat it. Twenty minutes later, another one will be on and say the exact same thing. Now, they both can't be right, okay? But the customer has to sit there and research the thing and come up with the right answer. So first of all, you have to understand marketing firms associated with roses are there to sell roses. It's no different than selling roses than selling cars, washing machines, or anything else. So for some reason, we want to hold them to a higher accountability than we do those commercials for cars. That's nonsense. It's business. The second thing is that I was victimized by it. I travel a lot. I used to grow a lot of roses at home. And uh, I wasn't there to spray, so all my roses got black spots. So I yanked them all out, and I bought over 80 roses from five different companies for touted black spot resistance. And they all melted with black spot. I was madder than hell. So I went on a quest to find out which ones were. I looked at 455 different roses, and I found 20 that actually had some resistance to black spot. Now, today, though, when a rose company says black spot resistance, it's probably true. They got taken to task with that very, very hard. But while they got taken to task with that, some work at the University of Minnesota made things a whole lot more complicated. And that is that the black spot pathogen, which is a fungus, it can mutate. Now, we're very aware and acceptant that a cold virus can, can mutate into a new type of virus, and all of a sudden, we might have had other cold virus and now be resistant slash immune to it, but this new genetic change, we're now susceptible. We see it in flus, or it happens in black spots. So a rose that looks resistant in one area that has one strain or race of black spot, you put that rose, same rose in another area, and guess what? It gets the disease and people scream, but the, that it's not true. But the rose company where they tested it did not have the strain that they have, and to the strains they have, it looked resistant. So it's a very comp complex problem. 
But today, most roses are tested in multiple locations to try to stabilize resistance before they are released. Where, where, do you, where, do you, where do you fall on the use of chemicals on these subjects? I mean, there is a huge group of people, and everyone who follows me knows that I'm, I'm completely okay with everyone doing whatever they want to do in their garden. If that is using synthetic chemicals, not using them, I use synthetic chemicals. So where do you fall on that with like a subject like black spot for roses? Well, on a subject like black spot, the first thing that I would ask is, what is your objective? If the person tells me that they want to grow roses and enter a rose show where they have to have perfect blooms and perfect foliage and they can not tolerate any spots, well, we're going to talk about using synthetic chemicals, okay? Because to achieve that level of control, unfortunately, with most roses, and even a resistant rose can get a little bit. So when, you know, we're going to have to talk insecticides. Now, if somebody says, I want to have pretty roses in my garden, and I want to bring a few of them in and put them in a vase and maybe take them to someone in a hospital. But if there's a spot or two on a leaf, it doesn't really bother me. Well, we may talk about some softer chemicals and some roses that are resistant. But on the other hand, if you've got some people that say, I just want to have pretty bushes in my garden. You know, when people drive by my house or walk by on a sidewalk, I want them to look at my roses and I want them to pop and for them to say, that's a beautiful landscape. They will tolerate more disease. So we're probably, we're going to be working with them in cultural practices and trying not to use chemicals unless they want to. But most people don't. And so you have to ask first, what is the person's objective? And it's that personal choice and what they're trying to do. It is. There's not a it fits all. Do you, do you get concerned at all in dealing with these things for, you know, on anthracnose and, and dogwoods now with uh, your work with roses, that there is a group of people out there that will vilify any use of chemical. Does, it's sort of this like pseudoscience or, kind of vilification. Does that concern you, you know, at all? Where are you going to draw the line? Okay. Um, not in Tennessee. It will not work. But if you go north of Kentucky, um, in many places, baking soda can be mixed with water and applied to roses and have an effective control of black spots. Why doesn't it work here? Our season is too long. The environment is too conducive for the pathogen. And so uh, the pathogen isn't under enough stress, so it doesn't work. But it works up there. Is anybody going to criticize anybody for using baking soda when they turn around and it's an ingredient in their pancakes? And so, you, you know, so w what are you defining? Yeah. Uh, my, one of my favorite Examples of this, you know, of people who just vilify everything off the board, regardless of what it are, are native plant people. You know, when somebody said, tells me, I only plant native plants. If it's exotic, I'm not interested. And I look at them real hard and I say, so you don't like daffodils? I love daffodils because I hate winter. And daffodils tell me spring is, is around the corner. And they go, oh, no, 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 I like daffodils. I, I just don't like all these non-native things that invade my landscape or invade the environment. And I said, so you like poison ivy? And they go, of course I don't. I says, well, it's native. What you're telling me is you don't like invasives. A coccus or a daffodil is exotic, but they're not invasive. You don't seem to have a problem with them. So when you get down to it, wherever you're talking about chemicals or any type of group of plants or anything else or animals or anything else, uh, I tend to just never, I always am polite outwardly, but inside I'm often laughing a little bit when I hear people just make blanket statements. Well, and also people, just to put this in, into perfect clarification on the whole native subject. Dr. Wyndham was dealing with Cornus, Florida, 
with Anthracnos, and there's and as he knows, I'm sure from living in that world for a while, the group of people that is all pro natives never mentions to you that something like Hornus Florida is native, and yet it's it was under attack from Anthracnos. Touch on that just for a second, because that's another thing that a lot of the people in that world of natives, uh, one of their sales pitches is, oh, this plant is native, which means no disease, no bugs touch it, and it just does phenomenal here. Well, always, you know, that's not always in the case for dogwood and fracnose. We didn't know, but now we're beginning to think that the pathogen that attacked the dogwoods was exotic and was brought in from Asia. But the proof on that is very, very thin. But we're beginning to lean that way. But, but you know, there are other diseases. You can go, you can, there are, we have diseases of us. And, you know, some of the things are exotic and we were being brought into North America. But there were diseases here. Ameri- uh, Native Americans were not immune to disease. If you look at the... Some of the x-rays they take of the pharaohs, you know, when they dig those poor people up, um, and they now x-ray them and do CT scans and all that other fun stuff, and they find out they had a lot of diseases. So disease and host goes on for a while. But let's get back to roses. Yeah, so, so let's – Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so let's talk about this, this areified mite. Because this is yeah. something that is, as you said, it's it's new a little bit that we're starting to, even with like the, the Topso virus uh, classification with thrips, we're starting to identify insects more as vectors. Um, give us a little bit of a, a window into that, that, that being new and that we have just become aware that this vector well, is moving. Th- Probably one of the first viruses that was known to be transmitted by an aerified mite was weak streak mosaic virus. And that's a very important virus and a very important crop that's grown in a lot of this country. And so there was a lot of effort put into that. And lo and behold, they discovered it was transmitted by a mite. Well, now that was exciting news. So then the question is, well, what other viruses that are transmitted by something that we don't know what, what are they transmitted by? And so... That's how the thing got started. We're probably looking, and I talked to the nation's, uh, Dr. Rhonda Coer in Beltsville, the nation's leading aerified mite taxonomist, and I said, Ron, is it true that we probably only know 5% of the aerified mite species out there now and in the United States? And he said, it may even be a little less than that. So this is a group of little tiny animals that we didn't pay a lot of attention to that may have a very big role in how things occur in nature. And it, I'm, I feel sure we will pay more attention to them in the future, but we just haven't. But this little mite, like I mentioned, floats in the air lands on, let's say, a hydrangea, a stick, a rock, tries to feed on it. It can't. If it can float again, it will, and it'll float again, but it's only got somewhere between two to five days to find a a rose, and that is just by dumb, blind luck. But now, you let one of those things land on a rose, and feed on it, and it becomes infections, and populations on that rose build up, and that rose is in a bed with other roses, and they start to balloon again, the odds of them landing on a rose in that bed become much higher than, say, one five miles down the road. And so what happens is the population builds up. Now, it's not that the mite population builds up. It's the population of mites that are carrying the virus builds up. Mm-hmm. We saw uh, uh, an application of this in uh, South Central California over the last three years, where the virus and the ro- and the virus and the mite were not known to exist, and they were accidentally introduced, and all hell broke loose. Mm-hmm. So- and uh, it didn't break loose overnight. So you, men- take- you mentioned the mites and not knowing 
if there are varying, we don't know enough about them, know if they're different species out willing to fight. We know this, this one is Phylacopsis fructifellus. We know this one. And this one just specifically feeds on roses or does it feed yes. on other vegetative plants? There as well? are 21 of these little mites known to feed on just roses. There are only three of them known to be in the United States. But two of those three, we only knew that they were in the United States in the last three years. Because as we started looking at this mite, all of a sudden, we start finding some of these other ones. Hmm. So, you know, that's, so literally, that's if the ro- about if, if, on this guy, yeah. So if the mite is a new discovery, so if the mite doesn't find its food source, the roses, it will just die. Essentially, it'll die. Okay. So the life cycle, it gets to the, let's, let's go worst case scenario, right? This, this mite goes from rose A to rose B. Okay. How much of a life cycle and as far as it, it what, what is its life cycle? Does it lay eggs? Does it have yeah. larva? Like how quick does it populate? The ones that bloom, the ones that move are virgin females. So let's say a virgin female mite lands on a rose, on a rose, another rose, okay? And she feeds, and she goes, yeah, food, okay, good. So she lays, starts laying eggs. She will lay about one egg a day. And those unfertilized eggs are all going to be males. And so then the males, when they mature in about five days, and all this time, She's been laying another male egg each day. The males will start laying on, on the surface of the leaf where the mites are. You know, and they're all in close proximity because they're microscopic. And they're crawling around, and they will lay something called a spermatophore on the ground. Now, when the female, she can't see, she can't smell it, but she can feel it. And when she feels a spermatophore... She's going to incorporate it in herself. Now, when she does that, she's now fertilized, and every egg she produces, still about one a day, is going to be a female egg. And so those will hatch, and they will go through the same thing on that leaf, and the colony just builds and builds and builds. And it doesn't sound like that would take long, but if you do the math, it can explode very quickly, okay? And so how long can she lay eggs? Her life expectancy is about 30 days. So on average, uh, a mite, uh, uh, one mite, she will probably lay uh, unfertilized eggs, male eggs, for five to maybe seven or eight days after she starts laying eggs. And for the rest of the 22, 23 days, she's going to be laying female eggs. There's we, we have pictures where twins are being released, you know, two eggs on the same day, but that's not common. And, uh, and so that's basically the life cycle. And uh, it's a very odd, bizarre, and alien world compared to ours. So is there a any kind of cold tolerance? As you mentioned, in areas like Tennessee, like where we're at, our growing season is so long. I always try to talk to people about what it does. It just increases our pressure. There's just more time for these things to happen. You know, as far as cold tolerance, well, one of the first places it was found is Manitoba. It's pretty cold. Yeah. This mite's been found on snowflakes. So it's not going to be killed out by cold. Okay. But it only reproduces when it's warm, and it only balloons, spreads when the temperatures go above 80 degrees. So temperature and climate plays a very important role. But it's not playing as big of a role in survival. Mm-hmm. Or so we, if you go in the deep south, uh, we found that that paper's been submitted for publication. Well, let's see. It was submitted 10 days ago uh, for publication, and uh, in which we found that the mites play out in Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia as you approach the Gulf of Mexico. 
And you say, well, the farther south it goes, it gets the hotter it's getting. Well, the mite is doing very well in Dallas and in Oklahoma, and it gets much hotter there than it does in Mobile or, you know, places along the Gulf Coast. Uh, so, uh, so that's not, so that's not true. Of course, it's more humid, but in those places where they hide, it's humid as well. So we're looking at trying to figure out why there are places where the mite cannot establish itself. We can take the mites on a plant accidentally into the deep south, and they will all die out. Mm. Interesting. We are very interested in knowing why. So is it global? That's another question I had for you with Rose Rosette disease. Is it just been isolated in North America, or are we seeing North it in America other countries? North America has been the only place it was known until a couple of years ago when a paper came out of India in which they found some genes. They did not isolate a whole virus particle, but they found a couple of genes that are unique to the Rose Rosette virus genome. And so they claim they have it. They did not look for, nor did they, so they did not find any other vector. So if a plant came in with it and they found that plant that was symptomatic, we don't know if it can spread there. Now that was a paper published in 2017, which meant the, paper, the data was at least a year old before it was published. And there's been nothing out of out of India about that since. <coughs> That's the only report that we have that Rose Rosette may have been found outside of North America. But there is no report that the vector, Phylocoptus fructophilus, so has it, been so outside it, of America. It, it takes this perfect storm almost, right? Like we have the vector mite of this particular species of mite, and we have the rose species that carry the genetics of rose rosette for it to happen. Is, is that accurate to say that it takes both of those things to exist in the, to create that habitat? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. So, but now, but now with this mite, there's a bunch of weird stuff. You know, you mentioned the media earlier. I spend a lot of my time telling people, and they're always surprised. You have a plant that has rose rosette, yank it out of the ground. The next day, go buy you another rose and stick in the in the hole. It's okay. And they'll go, but the mites will come off the soil. I've read on the internet, but you can't go back in that hole for at least two years, or you have to dig all the soil out. It's nonsense. Mites can't survive on the soil. They'll be dead in a day. So that uh, is that is so key, right? Because that's something that I get a ton. You probably get more than anyone in the country, maybe. So walk us. Let's go through this. There's two small questions here before we get to a bigger one. If someone, this actually happened in the last two weeks. I've heard this twice. If someone is in the rose nursery industry and they have a rose that has rose rosette disease. Should this rose be propagated from? No, they should destroy it immediately, and they will, I assure you. Thank you. You, you would be amazed that the opposite of that actually happened recently, doctor, but I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll save that for another conversation. The, the treatment for this, if someone, uh, roserosette.org is a great resource for this. If someone thinks they have rose rosette and we've identified it, what should the person now do? Well, the first thing is they need to make sure of their identification. And if I can give a small plug, one way that they can do this easily is type in Google UTK extension. And when the search pops up to UTK extension, they can click on publications. And when they, and then it's real easy to see. It's a big bow thing that says publications. And you click that, and there will be, you know, the little magnifying glass, and you type in Rose Rosette. Now, if you do that, you will find a new publication that just came out called Early Detection of Rose Rosette Disease. And not only does it tell you what it looks like, 
but it tells you other things that can be confused with it. And then it tells you what to do if you think you might have it. And so, and where to go to find out if you really do have it. And so, what, and, and we did this because we were just, it seemed like every other day of every week, of every month, that's not wintertime, and of course in different states that's different times of year, so it seemed like it would go on for 10 or 11 months out of the year, we were answering those same questions over and over. And we looked at all the stuff that had been put out on Rose Rosette. Nobody had addressed early identification. And people can do this. And we tried to do the thing where it's real simple and we're going back now and going to have the thing redone in Spanish. Yeah. Are you concerned that in the, the industry, of rose growing in the United States that this was said to me recently um, by a grower that, well, we don't have the mite is what they told me. And yet this is a microscopic mite. How do they know? Right. Do you think we have the protocols in place on the commercial side of this? We, listen, first of all, our commercial industry is very aware of this thing. They are very, very concerned. I know most of them personally. It's not that wide of a group. Even when you add up the rose growers together, there's less than 2,000 of them. Um, and there are some that will say, I don't have the mic. Now, I have talked to them about that. They send me samples, and we look at them, and we tell them we can't find any. And so they say they don't have the mite. Well, we couldn't find any, so they may be right. Or it may be the population is just below the technical, I mean, below the detectable limits. Because remember, we're talking microscopic things here. So I will never, ever say that there's not one. But I will say that it can't be detected. And so uh, there are growers out there. And, and if a grower was to send us some, we'd look at it for them. But that's just one snapshot. But we've had growers send us veins, multiple, multiple samples, multiple times a year. And we'll continue to look at them as long as we can do it and still get our jobs done. Exactly. All right, so let's get to preventative here, all right? Because this is something that I know everyone's thinking now. So we've talked about rosette <laughs> disease, the mite. I think this is probably the best piece of content anyone's done on this subject, by the way, doctor. So let's... Let's talk preventative. Is there something? Are there preventative measures that people can take to okay. try to keep their roses safe? First thing, and this is the most important thing, know what the early symptoms look like. That's why that publication I mentioned, it's simple, but it's so important. Know what the early symptoms look like. You see a rose that has one symptom, you go, hmm, I better check that thing again in a few days. You check it again, it has two symptoms. Now your radars are out. You see a third symptom, the bush comes out of the ground. If you do that, you will stop it before the populations can build up on that rose and start to balloon to your other roses. Now let me stop you. Let me stop you. Let me, let me stop you real quick because this is something that I saw twice also in the last week. People saying, and this was a national podcast that said this. I actually, I think I had sent you the link where the host of this podcast on NPR said, well, they have the cure for rose rosette disease. They had a plant that showed these symptoms. They just pruned it out. Can you completely take care of that problem for us? Because I don't want that out there, that people just think, oh, I just cut this off and we, it's all gone. We looked at pruning. And I will tell you this, but if you prune it out when you first see it, the odds of getting it is less than one chance and 10. And I don't think anybody is going to stake any. I'm not going to stake a whole rose garden on that. Okay? I'm not going to say that it can't happen, but the odds are against you. So we do not recommend pruning it out. What we recommend is destroying the bush as soon as it's detected. But if you let it start to build up, and now it's in multiple bushes because you didn't catch it with that initial bush, now you're in trouble. 
because not only will you have some, it's not only spread to some of your other bushes, but it's also probably spread to some that aren't showing symptoms yet, and they may not show symptoms for more than six months. So it keeps showing up, and they say, well, what I tried didn't work. No, they were already infected. You just didn't know it. Now, another thing that you can do if you say, well, my neighbor has rose rosette, and they won't do anything about it. We found that barriers work really well to help reduce incidence of rose rosette because they will intercept those mites. And by barriers, I mean privacy fences, uh, large uh, things of of uh, native or or just ornamental grasses, uh, any other large, dense shrub uh, that you can plant uh, between you and where you think it may be coming from uh, will be useful. Uh, there are some miticides that work, but we, we don't recommend those. Uh, they're expensive. Uh, it's hard to gauge when you should start. And for homeowners right now, we, re we really think if you are judicious, and you know what to look for, and you look for it, and I don't care if it's the last surviving clone of your great-grandmother's rose. If that thing gets it and it shows symptoms, out it goes. To protect others in your garden. Which just makes sense, right? This is, I mean, I, you know, I didn't want to get into this too much on Instagram, but in a short format, but this is almost like the anti-vaccination thing a little bit for some people, doctor, that I'm seeing, where it's like, oh... The, the myths and the pseudoscience that's out there, that's what concerns me, is that you could see well, this become like, like a population child, problem. If a child is not vaccinated and they, they get measles, okay, and there's no school out there that's going to, or health department's going to say, yeah, well, you know, this kid really needs to be in school, so we, then we're just going to have to let him come because being in school is important. Or we wouldn't have currency laws, so they, that child needs to be there. Of course we wouldn't say that. In this particular case, the mite is what makes rose rosette contagious, and we have to nip that in the bud because we don't want to use hard chemicals, and the way to do it is get that bush out of there before it has a chance to multiply. Now, we do have some commercial flower people that listen, doctor. Give us those hard chemicals, too. You know, for those people, it's not for the average home gardener, let's say that, but what has shown effectiveness as far as miticidal use goes to knock down the population? The problem, and, and you know, and I don't know where your podcast goes, okay, but I can tell you right now that some of the chemicals that will work that are illegal to use in Texas or Tennessee are not even legal to use on anything in some other states. Yeah. And some of the miticides that work are not, none of them are legal in New York. And so basically what I would say, if you wanted to use a miticide for, for controlling this mite, you need to contact your local county agent's office because they will know where you are at if which chemicals are legal for you to use. Because if you use one of those things that's not legal where you are, and someone sees you spraying it, they may not know what you're spraying, but they see it, and their little dog, their cat, their grandchild gets sick, they could claim that it was what you were spraying that did it. Now, even if it's not, if they have to get a subpoena and they go in your garage and find that you were spraying something that's not legal to spray in that state, it's sort of like being DUI in a wreck. Yeah. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. If you're drunk, you're guilty. No, that is a, that's a great point. And I think this is, is, this is another thing that makes this so challenging, right, that we have on the commercial side of it. You mentioned New York State has incredibly strict policies for chemical usage. Is that difficult almost for the commercial growers that you do work with to navigate, to speak to the industry side of this for a second? That it, it does. It all depends on where they are. And it all depends on how they can apply chemicals. Well, this is a complicated thing. And you have to rely on a site-by-side -side basis. And that's why we rely on the extension services in each of those states, because they know what the rules, regulations, and laws are for their state. So I'm not trying to pass the buck on this. It's just that I have to be cautious. Oh, boy, yeah. have I learned this the hard way. I just have to be cautious and say that 
when you're speaking to the public, and you know, I go to a meeting and speak, and you know, one of the things that I ask is, is there, uh, you know, let's say I'm, I'm meeting in North Carolina. Is everybody here from North Carolina? Almost invariably, there'll be some people from other states. So I can't even just do it for North Carolina. Yeah. Oh, okay. Makes perfect so, sense. So you, you, you have to just tell them, hey, that county agent can contact somebody, an extension specialist. They can get the information and they will get it to you. And then it will be specific for where you are at or the type of roses you're trying to grow. And whether you're a commercial applicator, you're doing it in a public garden or in a private residence. I'm going to ask you a psychological question because I wondered this today before we were going to record the podcast. You are clearly someone who has dedicated your life to plants. How do you balance this, right? We, you, you must love plants. But on the flip side of it, a lot of what you do and have done on a daily basis is dealing with the diseases of plants, the, the, the vector carrier insects of this. Like how in your own garden, like at home, like how do you balance that? Can you still just enjoy plants? Oh, I do. I love plants. Uh, if someone was to ask me to describe my landscape, I would tell them that it is uh, Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse meets Southern Living. Uh, you know, uh, it's survival of the fittest. I love putting plants together and saying, well, okay, you both got an equal chance. Which one of you is going to perform? And uh, we, we don't. You know, I love plants. I love going into gardens. I love going for hikes. Uh, I love it all the time. But, yeah, then I will turn around this summer and intentionally infest over 5,000 different roses with uh, mites, but I know have the virus to see how many of them I can make sick because I'm looking for the resistant one. Uh, yeah, it's a dual personality. Uh some people would say you're weird. Some people would just say more accurately that you're a nerd. <laughs> how do you? How close? Because I know you said you're just finishing up uh, with the one paper and report that everybody had jointly worked together. Do you think we're close to anything with rose rosette disease? Uh, uh, you know, identifying what species have a resistance to it to get oh, we, those in we there. Some now that are resistant. We're trying to identify what those genes are, and you have to understand with a rose. You know, I could come out with a beautiful, resistant red rose that has a high petal count, that has beautiful form, and the exhibition people and the nursery people could sell a bunch of them and everybody would be so happy. Wrong. My wife would tell you that if it's not purple and fragrant, I got nothing. So just having a rose that's resistant is no good. Some people like white ones, some like yellow, some like red. My wife likes purple. Other people do, too, I've learned. Uh, some people like bicolors, tricolors. Some like uh, single. Some want floribunders. Some like grandifolias. If it's not a climber, they're not interested in it. And miniatures, antique. What we're having to try to do is identify resistance. And then the goal is to get it into as many different types of roses as we can all at once. And if you don't think that's not a task, it's just mind-blowing. But we're dedicated to trying. Cheaters cheat and liars lie Without cause or alibi they don't know cause they don't care And love and war all is fair Hearts are broken, love goes stale The real world ain't no fairy tale Nothing turned out like you thought now look at all the time you've lost You'll never get it back, oh, you should have known Most would have realized that a long, long time ago Now all you're left with is wasted time and tears You should 
seen it coming after all these years You took the bed, you took the couch Looked as if you wanted a house Satisfaction never comes with greed He'd hoped all you need was time But there was something just to ease his mind You broke his heart, you broke this home And there's something that he can't condone Most would have realized that a long, long time ago